The Last Word with Matt Cooper. You're very welcome back to The Last Word. It's Nathan Murphy stepping in for Matt this evening. It's Friday evening, so it's time for the week trending. This delighted to be joined in studio by the journalist Lise Hand and special correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Mick Clifford. Good to see you both. Uh, we might start with, I guess, in some ways, the iconic images of the week, which the sad passing of Sinead O'Connor and the reception on the waterfront in Brain, just thousands upon thousands of people lining out to pay a very Irish tribute to Sinead O'Connor. At uh, least you interviewed Sinead O'Connor. Yes, I did. Uh, back in my one of my early inventions as like Ireland's premier rock chick, um, <laughs> I uh, I did. I interviewed her a couple of times, and it was always an interesting experience interviewing Sinead. You know, she's you had to be on your toes, really. I was um, wondering how did Ireland's actual premier rock chick Sinead <laughs> O'Connor find uh, your impression of wanting to be Ireland's premier rock chick? Only in the writing sense, but um, she, yeah, you know, because I interviewed her very early on. I mean, when she. Her, I think it was actually the release of her first two albums. So we're talking about The Lion, the Cobra. It was the first time I interviewed her. And I, my impression was, you know, I had never interviewed anybody quite like her before. That was the one thing I do remember. She was unique and once-off. And the one thing I do recall, because I was doing an awful lot of... I was used to doing rock interviews and so on. And they were always very polished affairs and everybody had their answers ready. And I got the impression that she really you know, she just opened her mouth and whatever came out was she was absolutely fine with. And I do sort of recall listening back to the tape and thinking, oh, I, I can't, you know, I can't put that in because it'd be murder. Um, you know, because she was just still, she was still very fresh, very raw. She had signed, obviously, at that stage and the album had come out and it was all very hectic and all very mad. And I think in a little way, she might have been kind of unprepared for just the avalanche of fame. She, you know, she understood obviously what what it meant and the power of it later mm. on. Um, but she was a one-off and I think this was sort of reflected in her funeral as well. Is As you say, it was a very Irish funeral as in it was a bit of this and a bit of that. It was, you know, there was a Muslim funeral, there was a very Irish send-off, there were Rasta flags, there were pride flags, everybody lined the streets and, it, you know, in a way I think it sort of it did sort of tip, reflect and it, it got a great balance I think as well because it can be, I think the family got it bang on, to be honest. They were able to grieve in private, but at the same time give the public what they wanted, which is a way to say farewell. Mick, I don't know if you ever had the uh, pleasure of interviewing Sinead No, O'Connor. I didn't, I didn't. No, I mean, um, I think the point about the, the family Lisa made is well made. I mean, you know, they, they were very considerate in allowing uh, the cortege to go to Braes that did, and at the same time having the private element to it. I, the, 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 everything though over the period of two weeks I was on holidays for most of it in, at holidays in Kerry but um, I, I, a small bit of unease about it all the, the, there's a touch of the Princess dies about it I mean this uh, again after Princess Diana died in 96 this outpouring of grief and you know there, there are an awful lot of people I think it's fair to say who were not as enamoured to Sinead when she after she died as, as um Sorry, before she died, as they were after afterwards, and you just have to wonder about a lot of stuff. Now I know to a certain extent a lot of people felt she was rehabilitated in the last few years, but she was a one-off. Mm. Uh, but I just felt that there was an awful lot of people out there. Do you not think she she had had that public rehabilitation that she, she had talking pub- back she to the, the early nineties? Yeah. Absolutely, I think an awful lot of people will look back on things they said about Sinead O'Connor with horror and an awful lot of regret. But over 
the last decade, there's definitely been a sense from the majority of Irish people of a of a real national hero, of an understanding of of her personality, of the softness of her personality, and an appreciation for for what she stood for. Well, I know the, what uh, Mick is trying to say, and I actually do agree with him to a point because when you have a personality like Sinead, when you say exactly what you think and what you believe, and you know, not everybody is going to agree with you, and you may actually hurt people along the way with what you say and by your actions because, you know, she is so focused on what she said. And that sort of absolute personality, obviously other people are going to, get, you know, maybe just get hurt or might be offended or might be angry by it. Um, so, you know, there is a, there is that look, that great thing when people die in Ireland, you know, that everybody comes out and says nice things and, you know, that's the way it should be to a certain extent. But, um I think that there are, I, I think Irish people are, can grasp the subtleties of understanding that she was a one-off, but she could be difficult. Mm. And I think you can hold those two views together and it doesn't lessen her as an artist and as, as a, an extraordinary one-off, but you can hold those two, two views at the same time. Absolutely. I, 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 agree with you. I mean, the thing that just struck me about it, the sadness of somebody who was so supremely talented and so vulnerable as a human being. And there was just something very sad that, you know, still in middle age that she, she ends up dying. I, I think that was the overwhelming thing I felt. Um, and she did strike uh, her, her own path early on. I mean, it has to be remembered, to be fair to her. The one thing about it was that she was, before it was uh, fashionable, she was the person who came out and said what she thought about what had gone on within the Catholic Church, and she was excoriated for that. That level of bravery was something quite unique, and I don't think it was ever matched since. But it's it's not it's not even herself and her personality. It's more, it's a, it's a modern phenomenon, this whole thing of uh, public grieving, so to speak. And I just wonder about it and the value. Let me put this with you. If it was of comfort to her family, what the hell? No big deal at mm. all. You know, that's really all that matters ultimately. Yeah. Well, you and can only imagine if uh, Twitter and social media was around in the early 90s when she went on Saturday Night Live and ripped up the picture of the Pope, what life would have been like then. Oh, I, it's unimaginable what would have happened. You know, it was bad enough what happened to her and the way that she was absolutely torn apart by pillars of so-called pillars of entertainment and media. Um that I can't imagine just that would be multiplied by so many times. I mean, the strain would have been unbelievable. So I think maybe like a lot of us who've been around for, you know, a good few years, we're kind of glad we did stuff before social media came. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think also, going back to Mick's point, that I think if she, I think she would have made a great old lady, you know. Uh, yes. I think she would have made the point that you don't lose relevancy the old, as the older you get. And I think that was something that that was really great about her. You know, the fire wasn't dimmed. She might have, she might have, you know, taken a slight backseat in terms of maybe her being an artist and so on, but her relevancy was remained undimmed and undiminished. And I think she would have been a brilliant L one. And I'm just, I, I think a lot of people will regret that we'll never know that and never see it. Uh, the late late show obviously come in for a lot of criticism uh, for many reasons, but there was still when Sinead O'Connor was on in recent years, everybody I think went, "Oh, something's going to happen here." And then when she performed, it was just as brilliant as ever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah, I saw one, one particular concert I saw in Vicar Street, I have to say, it, it, it was sort of nearly, nearly like a narcotic, to be honest, which was absolutely phenomenal. I have to say, I was wondering if she was really in her prime as an artist, like she was something else altogether. I'll uh, apologise for the clunkiness of this segue, but um, I'm not sure the people of Ballygar agree <laughs> and had the same experience when they went to see Wild Youth yeah. uh, play over the last couple of weeks. Um, they have responded to claims on social media that they were too intoxicated to perform at the Ballygar Carnival in Galway. They went all guns and roses on it. According to the statement from Ballygar, Wild Youth was scheduled to take to the stage at 12.30am, very late, but arrived even later than that after a gig in Cork. They were booked to play for 90 minutes. They didn't start till 20 past one and they were finished by 10 past two. The committee very disappointed that they did not meet their uh, pre-agreed contract. Uh, Wild Youth have denied all that and basically said, don't believe everything you read online is a band called Wild Youth make is this not exactly what you should expect Ah, Wild Youth you know this is rock and roll Babylon a band called Wild Youth comes on stage half cut which they didn't obviously but that's that's what was alleged best line of all is, is when they came out and made their statement they said just because something is tweeted does not mean it's always true Really? You know, and okay, somebody tweets apparently who was there at the gig suggested they may have been the worst for wear from drink. Uh, it's blown up. They come out and say, no, they were not. The Ballygar Carnival Committee, though, were not at all pleased with the whole scenario. They were supposed to play for 90 minutes. I, I'm not, no, I hope I'm right in saying play is the correct verb there for 90 minutes, but they actually only arrived at 118 at, and it left at uh, 208. AM. Well, did they get to the Eurovision? They didn't get to the Eurovision. They they, 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 they were the Irish representatives, but they didn't yeah. qualify they didn't for the qualify. final. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Sorry, right. there was something almost I thought quite sort of sweetly showbandy retro around the fact that they actually had two gigs in the one night, and one was down. The first gig was uh, was in Cork, and then they were driving up to Ballygar. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Beatles. It's going I mean, back to the of, Hamburg days. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, really, yeah. There's something sort of quite sweet about that. So you know, obviously, one gig ran late, and um, maybe they were over ambitious in their bookings, but. Um, you know, again, when I heard of them getting excoriated for sort of turning up to stage, you know, like Bottles, which was the original story, obviously, um, my sort of my initial reaction was, God, the young bands of today, you know, they can't even have a, a few beers and go on and actually, you know, get it together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's and everybody was outraged because they turned up late and then they played for 40 minutes. But the thing about the playing for 40 minutes this was a phenomenon that I've noticed with some sort of the younger bands. Um, the first time I went to see the Killers live in the Olympia and they played, their, it was when they released their first album and they came on, they played for 50 minutes or something, plus like encores and then and then just basically buggered off. And uh, I was with a... Um, Okay, can I? I'm just, this is going to sound so name droppy, but anyway, I was having a post. Yeah, no, I was having a post gig beer with, and Bono was in the vicinity, <laughs> and the two of us. And I was saying to him, and even at the gig, and I said, "Jesus, like if you lads came on and played, you know, back in the day for fifty minutes, you'd be bottled off." I mean, there'd be no way anybody would put up with that. But that apparently, you know, there are bands that will just come on and play for forty, fifty minutes, and that's considered okay. Well, what about the other extremes then? Which is, you go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, you just won't get off the stage. Well, I went to all three, and I mean, I was happy to be there, so you're... If you're going to ask, Uh-oh, somebody there we to go. I knew. I like. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the other thing criticizing Bruce Springsteen is somewhere I don't want to go. There's a cancellation coming in rapidly. <laughs> the, 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 the infinitely more significant event in the music world this week was the death of Robbie Robertson, ah, which yeah. I think was yeah. just band. really sadness. I felt yeah. from my own youth. I mean, um, 
the 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 last waltz was uh, something that just was the most unbelievable. And I think and it test, stands test of time. But just Robertson's influence and that of the band was yeah. just unbelievable. And I just rod really really sad at that. Yeah, and, and weirdly, it, it sort of did pass quite. Yeah, uh, really. I thought it would make a bigger splash, yeah. given the fact it was notable that a lot of other top musicians were mm. maybe on social media, you know, expressing their sorrow and condolences. But as as you know, as, as Mick said, that given the massive influence of the band and him, and even I mean, he he just kept on producing great stuff like the whole way through his career as well. I mean, many film scores later, things, later like, life and yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, things like you know, somewhere down the crazy river and all that. Yeah. It's just one still one of my and just one quick the best, the best line of all to come out of it. I mean, after they wrote music from Big Pink, which transformed everything the late sixties, Eric Clapton was so taken he asked to join, and he was politely told, "Sorry, no, you're not, you're not up to this standard." <laughs> Stop, Eric Clapton. Uh, Wild Youth, we should say, have uh, tweeted again to uh, say things ran over throughout the day, and we're deeply sorry to anyone who bought a ticket and felt let down. Ah, yeah. I did not get a similar apology from Guns N' Roses at the uh, O2 or the oh, point yeah. or whichever, six, seven years ago, where they firstly came on, I think over an hour late, started with Welcome to the Jungle, uh, crowd weren't happy, we're booing, we're throwing bottles, says if anyone throws another bottle, we're walking off stage. So obviously somebody threw a bottle. It's the worst thing to say. Because uh, straight away. So they walked off stage, another 45 minutes, no sign of them, so I left. Apparently they came out about 20 minutes later, played out till one in the morning, great gig in front of a half-empty place. That's rock and roll. And that's rock and roll. That's rock and roll. And that's what Wild Youth were trying to give to the people of Ballygar. They should be more appreciative. They'll own their act. (laughs) 0874 100 102. We need to take a quick break. You're welcome back. Lise Hand and Mick Clifford are with me for the week trending. Wild Youth is the only thing the texters are interested in right now. Wild Youth played for 50 minutes, not 40, and doing two gigs a night is not sweet. Granted, they're getting paid, but it is hard work. And your guests omitted to mention, I would say I omitted to mention, that the Ballygar committee statement said that Wild Youth were not drunk when they turned up. We'd just like to clarify that. Uh, It was always fashionable for a public grieving. JFK was the 60s version. People need to have a focus for their permanent level of stress and release in these conditions is the message in from M in Athlone. Uh, In Australia at the moment, they're a little bit obsessed with a mushroom mystery. What's the story here, Lise? Yes, I mean, I think it happened in a very sort of quiet corner um, in this small little place in eastern Victoria and uh, a dinner party turned lethal. Um, The hostess, Erin Patterson, she hosted a lunch uh, in her home for her former parents-in-law, Don and Gail Patterson, and uh, Gail's sister, Heather, and her husband, Ian. And Don, Gail and Heather are now dead. And... The police say that their, their symptoms were consistent having eaten death cap mushrooms. Now, the police are basically saying, look, we don't know what this is. You know, we don't know, was this just a horrible accident? Uh, or is the fact that this was, you know, her, like her ex-in-laws, was this actually significant? And I have to say, I mean, I kind of looked up the death cap mushrooms and they're responsible for 90% of deaths, mushroom deaths. And there's no... There's basically no cure. I mean, if you eat one of these things and you don't realise it until you start getting sick, you're basic, you've basically had it, you know. And they also, they, they do look quite like just normal mushrooms. So this, of course, has led to, spec, you know, the huge speculation is, you know, is there something sinister at play here? Uh, or was this a genuine foraging gone wrong, essentially? Because apparently foraging is huge around there. So, you know, personally, I would never forage anything unless, you know, I just wouldn't. But um, Or have your estranged in-laws over for dinner. Or Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite the story. Deadly combination. <laughs> um, 
it, it, it is a serious story. Now, it's interesting. Well, I mean, the obvious thing is that she doesn't appear to have been affected by it herself. Did she prepare yes. the meal and did she or did she not eat it herself? Is the other thing, you know. But yeah. it's, it, no, having said all that, her ex husband, who is the son of the deceased couple, um, oh, he was there too. He nearly died from an unknown gut mal. Oh, sorry, last year. He, 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 had, a, he had a problem last year. He's revealed that he suspects she uh, was trying to poison them and um, a source close to him says he suspected he had been poisoned by Aaron last year. So, I mean... Uh, every so often ha- Australia throws that news up. to his family? No. Exactly. Every so often Australia throws up something like this. It's, it's, it's I love Australians, but my God, the amount of things over there that can kill you is extraordinary between things that crawl and things that slither along the floor. And it's a great country for... For, for, for deadly <laughs> stuff, you know, it really is. But yeah, it's it, that's a very good point. I mean, maybe if the ex-husband had suspected that, you know, his food had been interfered with, it might be. You think he might have mentioned that to the, you know, to his folks before they were all invited over for dinner. It's very odd, but it's it's gripping. Anyway, everybody is absolutely fascinated by this, and uh, I think the woman involved as well. I think she was interacting with the police, but then I think she. You know, they, there seems to be some issue with trying to locate exactly where she is now. And the there's, a, there's also a history in Australia of these scenarios whereby you families and somebody goes missing or dies, and they finger one of the family as the suspect, gets convicted, and years later exonerated. I think I can, there's at least two, there was that dingo one years and years ago, and there was a more recent one again. They, 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 they have a tendency to, to go bullheaded in these things and then uh, repent at leisure, you know? Yeah, I've been watching uh, that program, The Bear, and there's an episode in the latest series where there's a family dinner, and it's the most stressful family dinner you could ever be a part of or watch. And I feel that this is this is a Netflix series in waiting. Do do you know what? You're absolutely right. Yes, I mean, I'm sure somebody's circling now already working on the script. Uh, A lot of the stories this week again uh, surround extreme weather events. Um, The Video coming out of Hawaii um, is quite horrific over the last 24 hours. The death toll has risen to 55, but I haven't actually started entering many of the houses. Uh, there's wildfires in parts of Portugal, another extreme heat wave as well in Spain at the moment. Temperature reached 70 degrees, mm. which is just in Iran. It's 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 one of those things that, yeah. I mean, if I sometimes now, you know, you wake up in the morning and you hear what the latest sort of climate catastrophe is and you're just sort of unsettled for the for the day. And I, I suppose there's that slight disconnect because we're having such a pretty grim summer here. I mean, we really are. Um, you, you know, it just seems to have been permanent autumn for the last few months. Mm. Um, windy, lots of shower, like those mad heavy showers. And so I think it's it's sort of hard for us to kind of really connect that, this is actually also global change and it's got to do with the fact that Jetstream isn't doing what it normally does and that's why we're stuck. Um, and then you just look at the, you know, the, the horror fires and the massive floods and so on. And I mean, of course, you know, the, the irony is that it's the countries and the regions and the areas that rely hugely on tourism. And, you know, the, their whole thing is come and enjoy the sun and, you know, hang out. And now it's just come into, the blessing has turned into a curse. Um, and it did strike me, I know we I know that we were talking earlier on about the stories we were going to cover and we were talking about the, the jamboree in South, South Korea. Korea yeah. Or in South, South Korea, you wouldn't get in. <laughs> that North would have Korea. been a surprise for that everyone. That would be a bit of the no jamboree there. But, you, you know, one of the things in that was, you know, 40,000 scouts from around the world. What the hell is the carbon footprint from 40,000 scouts from around the world? And I think this is, 
again, there's a massive disconnect between people, you know, hand-wringing about these, you know, this enormous problem, this this global catastrophe. And yet still at the same, you know, saying, oh, I'm going over to, you know, I've booked six trips, you know, playing golf in, you know, the Costa del Sol, or I'm, I'm sure I'm hopping over now to, you know, to, to Frankfurt to see the sister or whatever. And then you're or else flying 40,000 scouts plus their families and all that long haul. And I think that people really have to start connecting the dots on this stuff. We're not, though, are we? Because no. when, and everyone is probably knows people who've cancelled holidays to Spain over the last few weeks because they've looked at the heat, but they're cancelling it because it's too hot. Nobody's cancelling it because they're thinking, well, me going on this airplane is going to contribute to this in any way. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is the whole business of climate change is not some uniform thing. I mean, the, the, you have the baking heat in the Mediterranean, you have flooding elsewhere. There's a report out here there the last couple of weeks that we could be prone to, we, it doesn't look like certainly in the immediate decades, put it that way, we'll be prone to, prone to very excessive heat, but we could certainly be prone to very excessive flooding. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, the other thing that arises about it, unfortunately, I, I would predict that what will happen is this will pass and it will ease off during the winter and it will lead to absolutely no change in the complete uh, laggard type of a way internationally that climate change is being dealt with. That which needs to be done will still not be done because it will discommode and economically cost too much and that's the crazy thing. We go through a summer like this right across the world breaking out in different places at different times that shows we're going to be prone to extreme climate episodes from here on in and yet the things that have to be done, the political will, willingness, the, the, the joint willingness across the major um, countries is just not there. I mean, if you look at how difficult it is to get agreement on any policies on climate change here, there's various interest groups are saying, no, we can't do this. There's obviously a lot of debate now between uh, with the, you know, the farming industry and the farming, farming community. But it's not just that. I mean, again, it is people um, just saying we're not paying extra for this, that and the other. And I mean, you'd, if I look at the projected the flood map and I last looked at it it was saying projected floods for you know 2050 now I mean the way things are going it could be projected floods floods for you know 2025 and I mean where I live is will be completely you know it'll just I'd be underwater I live on right on the, on the seafront and I you know I as, as as it is I can't get home insurance because I rang a few places and they were right. like you're in the floodplain and the, the, the um, other thing is notwithstanding the serious stuff in uh, some of the wealthiest countries in the world this summer the biggest impact is on the poorest countries mm-hmm. around the, equ- uh, the equator and, and uh, the equator and all mid-Africa West Africa all elements of Asia that's where the most serious issues are and the other thing too is in tackling it remember the most developed countries are the the attitude of the developing countries like India China and that towards the West is that well you've had your 150 years of uh, carbon uh, overdoing it and now you're trying to tell us to rein things in so it is a very difficult thing but it just doesn't seem like the the political willingness is there to tackle it you hate to say it but it could take and I mean I really hope to God it doesn't happen but I mean you could see it taking some ex- like extraordinary catast- like catastrophic thing to happen to really shake people up um, I don't know what it is I don't even want to speculate because it just gives me the you know, Well it is also clearly going to drive immigration over the coming years and uh, what is going to await people when they arrive to this more temperate part of the world uh, 
Braverman's barges is what's going to await them, it seems, uh, in the UK. And oh. everything that had been predicted about Suella Braverman's plans to house um, refugees in uh, barges um, and been described as debt traps have uh, pretty much hit the spot because already there's massive issues. Yeah, I mean, there's already massive issues. They were literally boarding the first poor unfortunates onto this the, the baby Stockholm barge of Dorset when... It turns out that they were, did some water testing and they found Legion, Legionella, Legionella bacteria, basically Legionnaire's disease. They found some samples of it aboard and they reckon that normally this is something that maybe might accumulate in showers on the thing. But like, I had a look at the video of, of the in- interior of it and it is the grimmest, saddest place. It's, it, it is literally does look like a floating prison. And they were trying to show, oh, look, there are, you know, there's a, there's a lovely little kind of relaxation area. And it was about three leather couches, you know, in a really grim room. And we have a gym and there was, you know, a few pieces of equipment in this basically windowless floating box. And these are people who, I mean, one of, there was one, uh, unnamed, um, asylum seeker from Syria. And he said, he lo- took one look in, he started freaking out because it reminded him of the little boxes that he hid out in when he was trying to avoid ISIS. And, you know, again, this is part of this toxic, absolutely awful shower that are in power over there at the moment. I mean, if you look at some of the things that some of the Tories have been saying, I mean, you've, you know, they're, you know, Lee Anderson basically said that uh, asylum seekers who don't be housed in barges should, in quotes, F off back to France. You know, one Tory or MP. Then you have Suella. I let um, I let Mick have a good rant about her. And um, but you know, there's there's uh, you've got you know Robert Jenrick, who is actually the um, immigration. Uh, he's in charge of immigration, mm. and he was sort of describing this as decent accommodation. At the very same time, the fire services were going, "This is a debt trap." But Mick, are we in any position to? look down on the British government's way of dealing with immigrants, considering what we've had in this country with direct provision and the fact that the Irish government is to begin tendering for these flow tails. Now, there's no timeline around it, but we could find these in Ireland as well. We do, but to be fair, I think we are in a position to look down on them because what seems to be driving them is not, for example, a, a, an accommodation crisis, as is the case here, but they seem to be reaping what they sowed in terms of they pandered to the notion that the UK was being overrun by immigration yeah. in order to push through Brexit and um, go along those lines, which was total fallacy. I mean, if you were to take most of the immigrants out of the UK, the economy would collapse, as it would in most Western economies. And now they have to show that they're going to be tough on this and they're really, it's just getting extremely nasty at this stage. And it will continue to do so until such time, basically, as you have to hope that the alternative government comes in there and starts restoring to the UK, the UK to some form of sanity. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, We do have a text in about meatloaf in moat. Uh, so when Meatloaf used to do his grand tours of Ireland, he complained about bottles being thrown at him and somebody threw a wheelchair onto the stage. I remember that. And uh, just on the mushrooms, as a great chef once answered when asked, which mushrooms you could eat? You can eat any mushrooms you want, but some of them just once. <laughs> we'll leave it there on the week trending. Lee Sand, Mick Clifford, thanks for coming in. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-